from the campus of Stanford University. This is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Uh, So I often think of you as Judge Pope. Judge Pope? Yes, because you make very wise decisions about difficult questions. Thanks, Dan. Did you have something in mind that you were referring to? Well, I I think it's going to reveal itself on this show today, because we're, we're talking about issues of free speech and how to prepare students. And then some of the things that free speech runs up against, uh, where you're trying to make sure that it doesn't lead to hate and bad things. Yeah, I I know. So I have an example of this in a class that I teach. I teach an intro to curriculum class, Mm -hmm. and we talk about uh, one of the ideologies in curriculum is religious orthodoxy. So, you know, you've got you went to Catholic school or you went to Hebrew school or um, there are many schools across the globe that use religion as a as a basis. And I have to be really careful because um, in particular, in one class I was teaching, I had um, someone who I knew was a very religious Catholic and someone I knew was a very uh, religious Muslim. And um, part of what I want the students to be able to do is be a little bit critical of all of all kinds of um, ideologies that that pertain to schooling and really think through what is behind this. And so on that particular day, we were going to be critical of religious ideology. And critical is not bad, right? We weren't going to slam it. Isn't there a nicer word than critical? Well, that's the word, right? Critical. Think critical thinking, right? So I wanted them to think critically, right, um, about this. And I was a little bit nervous. I didn't want to offend anybody. I didn't want any of the other students in my class to be offended or by accident offend them. And yet I wanted to have a really good, deep discussion about the value and some of the constraints of uh, of religious education. And? Nobody you, got hurt. So Everybody how, was good. How'd you do? Um, so... When I, I I set up norms in my classroom, you know, right from yeah. the beginning, that that you're going to hear things that you disagree with. The part of education is really uh, thinking and listening beyond your own beliefs and having an open mind. Um, and I was and I set and I set the scene that day too. I said, look, I this this is one of those places where people might be offended, and I want all of us to be aware of that and yet have this open dialogue. And it went okay. I was I was scared. I was so do, scared. Do you think? Uh, when they leave that class and they go out into the world, they'll be better at doing uh, critical thinking, avoiding the knee-jerk reaction. I mean, this is, you know, a hope, right? Yeah. As an educator, I don't follow it. I, I, I haven't conducted studies on it. I'm sure somebody has. Yeah. But I think the more you practice it and the more you see it working, the less likely you are to have these sort of explosions happen in your classroom. So there, there's uh, interesting studies on norms, and the way people will follow norms to the extent that they believe everybody else expects them to and the extent they believe that other people will also follow those norms. Hmm. So if they're in your classroom and everybody's following these norms and the expectation is they will as well, they'll do it. But if you go out in the real world and the expectation is they follow the norm but nobody else is, they'll, they'll violate the norm. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, so so it's not just what you do for the students. It's also what you do for the Places they're going into right. to help do that, right? So that you know the 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 issue of free speech is, and sort of 
protecting the rights of the 20 percent, say, but still allowing free speech by the majority. This, this is such a complicated space. It's hot, hot, and, hot. And so I think it may come to as a surprise to people that the role of philosophers is actually to clarify things, to kind of make it so, oh, these are the terms of the discussion. And so we're very lucky today to have Eamon Callan, who's a professor at the Graduate School of Education and is also a philosopher. And his interests are in civic and moral education and in the application of theories of justice and democracy to problems in educational policy and practice. So when I was an undergrad taking philosophy, I took ethics, which begins to spill into this space. And it, it was the single hardest course I ever took. Ethics was your hardest course? It was, it was incredibly hard. Wait, and, why? And I, why? I, in part because the professor was unethical. Oh, well, okay, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, so, so the way it worked is it was – let me start. Hi, Eamon. Hey, Dan. Okay, okay so, so welcome, let me go. Welcome, Eamon. So welcome. let me just finish my story. Uh, yeah, so, so where I went, they had this rule. In the first year, you didn't give students grades, right, so that you didn't feel the kind of pressure of grades. And so this guy took this as an opportunity to make the most punishing comments ever. Because he knew it wasn't a grade. So he was just, he would just, whatever you said, he would just like, no, 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 no. And, and so you sort of felt like, I, I give up. I have nothing to say because I don't know enough. And it, it just completely shut me down. Shut down free speech. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of a, of a, of a well, kind. I, I think in his mind, it was shutting down ignorant free speech. Mm. But uh, anyway, okay, Eamon, Eamon, let me, let me have a kickoff question for you. So I think, uh, the free speech, we view it as a right. You're allowed to express your opinion. But I, I assume the argument for that is that, yes, because once we have these opinions, we can begin to think about them. And we can think about them critically. So we can have critical thinking. Uh, I don't think people know what critical thinking is. Or, right. or they don't have a crisp definition or, or even a rambling definition. So how would you describe critical thinking to people? I think in the first instance – we have to have criteria of competence in thinking. Minimally, it involves some grounding in adequate knowledge and not just adequate um, propositional knowledge to the question at hand, but also knowing how to make inferences from those propositions that are logically sound. But these are pretty, I think, rudimentary criteria of critical thinking. When we really flesh out what that notion involves, we quickly start bringing into play a range of um, intellectual virtues that are essential to the flourishing of the critical mind. Virtues like intellectual courage, imagination, open-mindedness. And it's very interesting that in recent work in epistemology, there's a renewed interest in these virtues and what's involved in their cultivation. Interestingly enough, if we think of the classical text in uh, Western philosophy – on freedom of speech in the last 200 years. It's John Stuart Mill's uh, On Liberty. And I think latent in the second chapter 
is a certain view of what a culture of free speech involves. And it's a culture in which these virtues flourish. I mean, it's not just that people have a legal entitlement. It's rather that this is a culture where people use that entitlement to live a certain kind of flourishing life, a life in which the virtues of critical reason abound. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking today with Eamon Callan, and we are talking about critical thinking and intellectual virtues, curiosity, uh, openness, imagination. So I, <clears throat> so as I understand it, uh, I'm going to summarize John Stuart Mill in a sentence Ooh, or two. You, and go, then, and then, you go, Dan. And and I think his, his argument was you want free speech because uh, if someone's right, you want to hear it. And if someone's wrong, that incorrectness, thinking about it and reflecting over it can help improve what is right. And, and so, yeah. so, so he sort of shows that in both cases, you want yeah. free speech. But this idea that uh, it, it's uh, on sort of rational grounds is the argument. Your proposal is, no, to have this, you need uh, certain virtues, a certain kind of culture that supports this. That's and, right. And, and then – which, which kind of quickly brings us to the question of teaching this. Yeah. Right? So, the, so and, you know, the idea of free speech is you, you have free thought. You get to explore new ideas. You're, you're really trying to engage in ideas you may have never known. Uh, and, and the word freedom sits in there. At the same time, you know, schools are indoctrinating people. Right. So I'm indoctrinating people that they must do free speech. Am, am I am – I, I must be thinking about this some wrong way, that I'm sort of forcing people to be free. Well, let me – in the first instance, let me say a little bit more about the kind of virtues that I think Mill espoused and that we still desperately need if we want a flourishing liberal democracy. And then I'll circle back to the question of indoctrination. Okay. okay. So there's a fascinating passage, at least it fascinates me. Um, it's just a paragraph um, toward the end of the second chapter of On Liberty where Mill talks about um, this culture of free speech as a, a venue in which um, exponents of rival ideas – are adversaries fighting under hostile banners. Um, so it's a, it's a martial metaphor of, of warfare between contending intellectual factions. Um, but then he says, of course, um, these are not the people who actually do the learning. The people who actually do the learning are those who are the impartial observers. Mm -hmm. the oh, that's interesting. Yeah, of the, the audience. Of the warfare. Interesting. Um, but I think actually a, a more uh, – this is perhaps goes beyond a charitable interpretation of the text and is in the realm of a reconstruction of what the argument might be. We will allow that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. You are so gracious. There you no, go. no, no. You, sorry, your speech is censored. <laughs> that that we all need to play 
um, both roles. We need to learn to be passionate advocates of our own ideas. But we also need to uh, stand back from contention and to listen charitably to what our adversaries have to say um, and to learn from them. That is a, that, that is a difficult move to make. And um, it seems to me that, you know, I often find my own students, um, when I ask them to write an essay, they're, they're very eloquent in uh, defending a position to which they are intuitively attracted. So they're pretty good at the armies fighting under hostile banners stuff, though they're actually not that good when you really start looking at the quality of the argumentation because they're not sensitive enough to counter-argument. Mm. They haven't really thought deeply enough about the objections that can be leveled to their position. So you only really learn how to refine your position when you start thinking about how it looks from the viewpoint of an adversary. And then, of course, you might become convinced that your adversary is right. Uh Or at least that they're 50% right. Because then you have to open your mind. You have to move beyond curiosity as to what your adversary really believes to open-mindedness with regard to the possibility that they could be right. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking today with Eamon Callan, talking about how you argue persuasively for uh, something that you're passionate about, but also how you anticipate what the other side might say and listen um, with open ears. So the the broader question is, you know, is is it sort of a paradox to indoctrinate people in a set of virtues and uh, free speech in some ways to tell them what they have to do? But before we get there, we sort of ask the question, is this possible? Could you even do it? So Amen's uh, proposal is that uh, you want to both be in the heat of the battle, but you also want to learn how to be an observer. And the observer is dispassionate. So here's the question for you, Denise. Oh, boy. Should, should everybody be in debate club? And, and they, they're in debate club, and then they not only debate, but then they have to watch a debate. And... Okay, it's very funny that you said that, because when Eamon was talking, the first thing I thought about, because, of course, I was in debate club. Of course Of course, were. right? Was this is the, what, you te- what you teach to prepare for a debate. You absolutely have to anticipate what your opponents are going to say. And I want to dial down the war metaphor, and I, it's totally yeah, okay. I just want to dial agree. that. We're not talking about yeah. violence here. We, right. I, I want to make that really clear. We're talking about right. words that you're passionate about, but you're not inciting violence. That is where freedom of speech ends. Right. Right. So so I want to make sure we we get that. But I would say I think teaching debate and as an English teacher in in a classroom, I actually used to teach this. And I still with my graduate students have a little scaffold worksheet where you say, what is your argument? What is the evidence? What is the argument that's going to be used against you? What is their evidence? And how do you anticipate the counter argument? We still do that. That's just that's just good. um, That's that's teaching good writing and good thinking, in my opinion. So, So what do you think, Eamon? Is is debate 
I mean, the point of debate is to win, not to achieve truth. Oh, I can't, wait a minute. I totally disagree with that. <laughs> well, you were not on the debate team. No, and I didn't observe you. <laughs> okay, so no, boo. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was busy using uh, Twitter to take cheap shots at it. <laughs> well, I, I think a cautionary note is uh, prudent here to the extent that I think the point of debate can be just to win. Okay, totally fair. And I and uh, that's that's the the only warning I would register here. Um, you know, to to reach back even uh, much further in time in the history of philosophy, um, if we go back to ancient Athens, um, one of the distinctions that was very fundamental to the work of Plato was the difference between true philosophy and sophistry. Because sophistry was about learning the tricks that enabled you to persuade others. And philosophy was about learning how to find the truth in dialogue with others. And I still think that's a fundamental distinction. We live in a world where students are bombarded on every side by people who are very expert in using the arts of persuasion. And it's part of what breeds their, I think, their cynicism and their alienation. Hmm. And I think to create a space in their lives where we're really trying to help them find some passion for the truth, and to the extent that we might want to use debate, we must be very careful to make the truth the paramount ideal. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will have more with Eamon Callen talking about uh, debate and free speech next on Sirius XM Insight 121. We translate the research we know about best practices with school, curriculum, and parenting to teachers, administrators, parents, and youth. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Eamon Callen, uh, philosopher of education here at the Graduate School of Education, talking about debate, free speech, indoctrination, a whole bunch of things. Yes. Uh, so the, the, the kind of lead topic right now is how do we get people to engage effectively in free speech? And, you know, one proposal is, uh, well, these are a set of skills, you know, and you learn to use these skills and, you know, you learn how to do deduction or something like that. And another one is uh, it's a set of virtues, uh, a kind of view of the world and your place in it. When I think about things like this, uh, I often sort of say, what, what is the thing that prevents people from engaging in this? So it's not just they need to learn how to do this. Because I think people are pretty good at this when, it's, when the situation is right. They naturally do this. It's the kind of thing that, that makes you make the choice not to engage in it. And so here, here's, there seems to me to be a situations where I as a person in the world feel that reason has failed. I, I am frustrated. The slowness of change is, is undeniable. And I just it's time to do something about it. And so what am I going to do? 
I'm going to go, I'm going to make the move towards power and not towards reason. You know, the Vietnam War, the protests around this, this is an example of this. So, so how, do I, how do I think about this with my children where they're in a situation and they're trying to reason their way through and they're getting frustrated? Uh, or how do I think about my students? Because there is some merit to their point of view that reason has failed them. So, but, but, but the opposite of reason you said is, is power. Is that violence? Uh, is protesting? It, it, is, it is giving up reason in favor of persuasion. And persuasion may include lots of things. Uh, some of which we do not like. So, but, but I'm really frustrated. Look, I've, I've reasoned, I've reasoned, I've reasoned, I've reasoned. Nothing's changing. All right, Eamon, help us. Yeah, well, if I try to think of an example of a more pres- – an historical example of what you have in mind, um, I think of um, – for instance, uh, the frustration of many people on the, on the left with the, the failure of um, the failure of America as, as a state to follow through on the ideals of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, a big issue in education. Yeah, right? huge that, issue that, in that education. That we, we need to help, you know, the, those who have been underserved. Yeah. Um, and this has played out in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Um, and to some extent, we can see it in... Um, escalating um, violent confrontations at some of the, um, uh, you know, some recent rallies after Charlottesville. Um, Of course, we also have to bear in mind that um, on the um, American uh, right in the Tea Party movement, and in the uh, surge in popular support for Donald Trump, there was a comparable phenomenon, which we may think was poorly motivated, um, but it did happen, of people who felt excluded and marginalized in their country. Um, I know where my sympathies lie, who I think has the better case Um, But the fact remains that our only prospect of reconciliation in a democratic society is to find ways of actually talking together. And, of course, that won't create a nation in which 80% of us can be mobilized around some kind of new political consensus. But it is our only prospect, I think, of finding some kind of new democratic dispensation that might be an improvement 
on our current and very frightening political malaise. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Eamon Callan about how to get two very different polarized sides um, talking to one another. So, so the answer is reason can't fail. It's our only hope. It's not so much that reason can't fail. Is It's that the alternatives are downright hopeless. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, so I'm a, a parent listening to this. I'm a teacher listening to this. What's your best advice in the two minutes we have left? Well, I would certainly, um, from as soon as you can get your kids asking and enjoying asking why questions, do it. Um, and, um, to the extent that you can support, uh, teachers in your schools who want to create an ethos of inquiry and who support imaginative endeavor and, um, the exercise of critical reason in the classroom, for God's sake, do that. Um, that is the core of the education worth having. It's not the number of AP classes that your child is going to uh, pa- uh, pass. It's, that is the core of a, a, a liberal education that deserves the appellation liberal. Um, and support you know, that I don't think we live in a society where we really support teachers in doing this. Um, th- I think that is really critical. I, you know, the, the, I don't see at, at Stanford, even though our students are in many ways wonderfully well prepared when they show up as freshmen, um, I don't see them... Uh, I don't see the, the, the critical thinking has been established in a way that it could be established in a good K-12 education. And these are, of course, extraordinarily talented uh, students. So uh, I, let, let me interrupt to say, I'm, I'm, I am a simple man. Give me one intellectual virtue I should work on with my class that I'm teaching this year? Which one could I go after and sort of figure out how to get that intellectual virtue in these students and young people? I think provoke disagreement in the class and then try to get them to take those who disagree with them more seriously than they are intuitively inclined to do. Well, I was hoping you were going to say something easier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight 121. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.